0: Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my lovelies, to your Friday episode. Today, we listen to the finale of Charles Bonnet Syndrome, written by Mr. Stuff. Is Andrew truly insane? Is what he's seeing visible to others? And does he make the right decision in how to manage his hallucinations, if they really are hallucinations? Folks, join me today for the last part of this tale, and because I had some time up my sleeve, I've also included a true crime classic from the Crime Classics OTR. I wanted to kickstart your Friday with a duo like this. I really hope you enjoy it, mates. So join me for an old grey and a set of two very different but brilliant stories. Enjoy. A full fortnight passed without incident. Sure, I saw a flash of color one day, a dancing yellow lightning bolt that zigzagged back and forth on the street outside my apartment. But that was exactly the sort of thing I'd come to expect from my condition. It was exciting otherworldly, but it wasn't scary, not like she was. In retrospect, that fortnight was blissful. It was a reminder of what life could be like. The existence that I'd carved out for myself since my diagnosis, life was good. The night that changed the way I viewed the tall woman, last night. I'd been out and had a couple of drinks. I'd met the other guys with visual impairments for dinner, and we ended up at a bar afterwards. I wasn't hammered, but we got through plenty of beers between us, and by the time I stepped out into the cool night air, I felt decidedly light-headed. It took me a while to make it home, laughing and talking to a couple of the other guys from our group as we strolled along. It had been a great evening. It's probably the last truly good one I'll ever have. I bid the other guys goodnight and, fumbling with my keys, let myself in. With swaying steps, I strolled into my hallway, slamming the door a little too loudly behind me. I took off my jacket, hung it on the hook by the door, then hit the light switch. She was waiting at the end of the hallway. All three hands held aloft into claws, reaching for me that same maddening, malevolent grin on her pale face. I swore again, louder than ever, actually jumping back a step, recoiling from the impossibly tall and terrifying figure lying in wait in my home. The tall woman didn't move. She just stood there, staring and smiling at me. I stared back, but I sure as hell didn't smile. Jesus Christ, I muttered under my breath. You know how you can feel a little paranoid after a few beers? That feeling of non-specific post-alcohol dread? Imagine that, combined with a giant grinning mutant woman suddenly appearing in your home. Suffice it to say, it was very, very, very uncool. I don't need this. I sighed and closed my eyes. One, two, three, four, five. When I opened my eyes, her face was just a foot from my own. Grinning wider than ever, she dashed the length of the hallway and was now stood so close that her long, grasping arms were either side of me. Her fingers twitching and clawing at the air around my face. I could see her chest heaving, as if she were actually laughing silently at my attempts to dismiss her. As if the thought that I could ever be free of her was amusing. I screamed, a full-bodied shriek of terror, and actually dropped to my knees, covering my head as if to fend off an unexpected blow. It never came. Finally, I lowered my hands, gasping for breath, shaking. The hallway was empty, the tall woman nowhere to be seen. Then I was on my feet and I turned and ran. Out of the apartment, out of the building, and into the street. I stood there, shivering. Terrified beyond reason. Without a clue as to what I'd do next. Finally, I pulled my phone from my pocket and I made a phone call. Hey, Andy. What's What's up? Jason asked. Jason, I need you to come here. I need you to come here. I said, sobbing. Jason didn't ask why, didn't complain... Instead, he simply replied, I'm on my way. Less than 20 minutes later, his car pulled up outside, and he dashed over to the steps outside my building, where I was sitting, shivering. He threw his jacket around my shoulders and asked what happened. His voice filled with concern. She's in there! I stammered. The tall woman! She's back! Okay, okay gently helping me to my feet. Come on, man. Let's get in there and check it out. I wish I could say that I was brave when we went inside, but I'd be lying. I cowered behind Jason, one hand on his shoulder as we made our way through my home. Of course, we didn't find a thing. We're talking a giant mutant woman in a pokey little one-bed apartment. Where the hell was she going to hide? Finally... After we'd checked every single room twice, I had to admit that she was gone. I'm so sorry, man. I apologized, feeling genuinely stupid. I got scared and I'm sorry, man. Hey, forget about it, buddy. Jason said. So I'm here now. Where do you keep your booze? Half a bottle of bourbon later, we were both feeling pretty talkative. She's, you know, just kind of different, you know? I tried to explain. I get it, I get it. He said. It's like you saw something bad and you feel bad and that's bad. He didn't get it. No, she's different, you know? I explained. I've never had a repeat hallucination before and they've never been scary, you know? She's not like the others. Dude. Jason said taking another sip of bourbon, you've got like, Charlie Bonnie syndrome, and you know that makes you see shit, so… He waved his hands in the air like a magician who had just performed the trick. I know, I know. I replied. No, listen, Andy, he said. You know how it makes you see shit, it's just your eyes, yeah? You didn't hear anything, you didn't feel anything, and this is how that stuff goes. It's your eyes, and I know it's scary, man. But you've been through, like, hell and high water in your life so far. You're tough. One of the toughest, bravest guys I know. And you can handle some creepy hallucination bitch. I laughed. I couldn't help it. She is a very creepy hallucination bitch, though, dude. He laughed, too. And we both took a drink. You know, that could help. He said finally, his voice thoughtful. What, drinking? I asked. No, well, yes it does. He giggled. I mean like, demystifying her. You should give her a name. Something stupid so she's not so scary. I've got to say that as much as I like creepy hallucination bitch, that's a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) I laughed. Yeah, I get that. He replied. Suddenly, something he'd said came back to me. How about Helen? I suggested. Helen Highwater. Awesome, he said, then raised his glass. Here's to Helen, buddy. To Helen. I smiled and drained my glass. Jason spent the night on my sofa, mainly because he'd had too much to drink to even think about getting behind the wheel of a vehicle. But honestly, I think the reason he drank so much was so he'd have an excuse to stay and keep an eye on me. I'm glad he did. Knowing that he was there made me feel safer, and I was able to get some sleep. He gave me a sense of security to know that if the strange vision I'd just christened Helen was to appear again, I'd be able to call on him for support. This morning, we both needed support. Ugh, it feels like a mule kicked me in the head, he groaned when I made my way into the living room. Yep, I replied, my own head thumping. Joe's, he replied firmly and staggered to his feet. As we drank strong black coffee and ate muffins, we didn't talk much. Finally, Jason broke the silence. So, you feel cool now? He asked his mouth still full of blueberry muffin. I nodded. Yeah, I think so. Not still freaked out about you-know-who? He asked. Helen? I replied with a smile. No, I really don't think I am. I reckon I can handle some creepy hallucination, bitch. Good. (laughs) He laughed, giving me a hearty pat on the back. That's cool, man. I bet you can. Now, as I sit here cowering in my bathroom, too scared to go out of my apartment, I know we were both wrong about everything. Remember how earlier I told you that the thought of being institutionalized, that the very idea of losing my grasp on reality was the most terrifying thing I could imagine? Now, I'd welcome that, because the alternative is far, far worse. After breakfast, I said goodbye to Jason, and he climbed into his car and drove away. The day passed without incident, and when Lois stopped by this afternoon, she even commented on how upbeat I seemed. You got a lady in your life? She asked casually. I laughed at that, wondering what she'd think if she knew the truth. Yeah, (laughs) something like that. I chuckled. Good for you. She sniffed. You make sure you treat her right. That tickled me even more and I had to bite my lip. Sure, I replied. I'll do my best. Tonight still, a little wiped from the exertions of the previous evening, I decided to turn in early. I brushed my teeth, washed my hands and face, and got changed. Finally, I fetched a glass of water and walked into my bedroom. I climbed into bed and instantly felt so, so relaxed Within mere seconds, I was ready for sleep. That sudden, overwhelming drowsiness that comes when you've spent a whole day keeping sleep at bay. I decided that resistance was futile and sat up to switch off the light. That sudden, overwhelming drowsiness that comes when you've spent a whole day keeping sleep at bay. I decided that resistance was futile and sat up to switch off the light. I nearly didn't see her. But as I reached for the switch, I caught a glimpse of something out of the corner of my eye. My heart leapt into my throat as I turned to the foot of my bed. The tall woman was crouching there, her grinning face staring at me from just beyond my feet. So many teeth. Her long, slender fingers spread out over my blankets, twitching slightly as she gripped the end of the bed. Slowly, excruciatingly so, her third, misshapen arm came into view over her shoulder, joining her other hands on my bedding. I froze, utterly petrified. I was at a crossroads here, arriving at a pivotal moment that had been coming for some time. She watched me, grinning, as if she was waiting to see what I'd do cruel amusement flickering across her pale face. But this time, I'd had enough. You don't scare me anymore, I said, my voice filled with defiance and anger. I'm not letting you do this to me. I reached across to the light switch. Good night, Helen, I said triumphantly, then flicked it, plunging the room into darkness. I laid there, a sense of tremendous pride surging through me, and I grinned to myself in my warm, comfortable bed, overjoyed at the emotional victory of overcoming my own fear. And then it happened. The thing that led me here. Something that turned my blood to ice water, my bowels to jelly. And so ends Charles Bonnet Syndrome by Mr. Stuff. Now, listeners, your next story is a crime classic, but I've left some of the recording errors at the start of this one because I found it particularly funny and interesting. Okay, mates, enjoy.
1: That's a chicken. She's a fat one. Say all the things a chicken can do. And besides all this cleverness, she's a...
2: The lady who carries the bird
1: in her left hand is named Abby Durfee Borden, stepmother to Emma and Lizzie Borden. Mrs. Borden weighs over 200 pounds. The curved-handled axe she holds in her right hand is her favorite when she goes out a month. Because with it, she does such a neat job. Which is more than I can say for the person who murdered Mrs. Borden and her husband, Mr. Borden... So tonight, my
3: report to you on The Bloody, Bloody Banks of Fall River. Crime Classics, a new series of true crime stories from the records and newspapers of every land, from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Hyland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Hyland.
1: The place is Fall River, Massachusetts at the start of a hot August in 1892. In that era, it was a town whose dominant color was brown, the color of sun-dried lawns, of rain stippled brick and board, of ladies' dresses that reached from neck to pavement. Next in popularity as far as color went was black. It was a stern time and a stern place, and bleak, where certain types of smiles were suspect. And where women only dared to stretch in the privacy of kitchen or boudoir. It was a time, too, when 18 was the age of marriage. And a single woman of 32 had to find surcease in this way. Breaking the saloon's windows. Knitting. Secretly tearing from the newspaper the latest picture of John L. Sullivan. Also Jim Corbett, who was rumored to be more of a gentleman. Or this way.
4: Death, thy endless mercy seal
1: Lizzie Borden's way
4: and make the sacrifice complete.
2: Amen.
5: There now. How did you like that hymn?
2: Oh very much,
4: Reverend Job.
5: And then I shall write my brother to send me the rest of the new ones from New York. I trust your judgment, Miss Borden, implicitly.
4: How is your brother?
5: Oh, he's getting married.
4: Married?
5: Didn't I tell you?
4: No. No, you didn't.
5: I'm sorry.
4: I think, Reverend, you might have let me know in another way. Less blunt. But you
5: don't even know my brother.
4: I hope you'll be very happy,
5: I'm sure you do, Reverend, yes, Miss Lizzie,
4: and how much longer will you grieve,
5: dear Miss Lizzie?
4: Your wife is gone now for four years,
5: dear, dear Miss Lizzie. How kind is your concern uh, <clears throat>
3: Still let me prove thy perfect will
2: My acts of faith, faith and, and love repeat, repeat. Til Till death, death thy endless, endless mercy seals
4: Likes chicken, Lizzie. Chicken he shall get. Glad you came out to the backyard. You can do something for me besides picking pears from the tree. You're just jealous because you can't eat pears, Mrs. Borden. Because you break out. Where you been, Lizzie? With the Reverend Mister Jubb. He got some new hymns from new dogs. <laughs> Why <are> you laughing? <laughs> oh, if I was a true mother to you instead of a stepmother. I'd tell you right out, you're never going to get married, Lizzie. New hymns from New York, your work with a fruit and flower mission, none of these are going to help. If I was a true mother to you, I'd tell you all of those things, but tenderly. Yes, Mrs. Borden. And it eats inside you, doesn't it, stepdaughter? Yes, Mrs. Borden. You and your sister Emma, old maids. They say that about you. Did you know that? Yes. Yes, Mrs. Borden. Here. Least you can do is some work. You can pluck a chicken as well as anyone. Yeah, well, I do the other. Get used to being useful. That's a way to live, too. Take it. All right. Mrs. Borden. What is it? Aren't you concerned about yesterday? What about yesterday? About the barns being broken into. Some children, probably. Why should they break into the barn? Looking for iron for sinkers so they could fish. Not so delicate, Lizzie. You do it this way. This way. I told Mr. Jubb about the milk. What are you talking about? About the milk. What about it? You've been in this sun too long, Mrs. Borden. Burned your memory away. About the milk. It's being poisoned. <gasps> poisoned? Why else do you think everyone in the family got sick day before yesterday? You didn't. I don't drink milk. And the barn's being ransacked. There's someone who wants to do us harm. <laughs> Make your fancy, stepdaughter. Someone who hates my father. <laughs> Your father said a man at the bank had cursed him. <laughs> father said he'd seen the man loitering about. Oh, now we've come to it, haven't we? What? Now we've brought the conversation around. What? Your father. Tell you something. He doesn't care for you. <laughs> he doesn't care for you at all. He loves me. Not at
2: all. <gasps>
4: What's the matter? Blood. Oh, my hands, blood, chicken blood. It'll wash off. That's the trouble with you, Lizzie. You shudder your way (sighs) through. What did you do that for? What did you smear that blood on my face for? To see how you look, Mrs. Borden.
1: is not exactly a healthy relationship between two grown people, but let's face it, the possibility of a lady's liking another lady in the Borden household was pretty remote. First of all, after the widowed Mr. Borden married Abby, he told his two daughters to do everything Abby told them, and often Abby would order Lizzie to do things right in the middle of plucking a pear from the backyard tree, and Lizzie dearly loved the pears from the backyard tree. Also, it was a constant source of wild hilarity for Abby that neither of her stepdaughters had been taken as bribe. She'd gotten married, but Lizzie never did. Nor Lizzie's sister, Emma. And sometimes Lizzie would go to her father's room and she'd ask him
5: this.
4: Can you stand her?
1: She takes care of my needs.
5: She cherishes me.
4: She's a hulk.
5: When seen through the eyes of affection... Oh,
2: father.
5: It's much too late to ask you to love her, Lizzie. But I insist that this kind of conversation concerning my wife shall be the last.
4: Whatever you say, Father.
5: Now, it's very hot. I think I lie down.
4: I'll take off your shoes. Never mind. I want to. Very well. Father. Yes? Tell me about my mother, my real mother. Oh, Lizzie. Please. It's
5: been so Please. long. I've forgotten. You have not. Yes, Yes, I have. No.
4: She was very lovely. She had brown hair. She had brown eyes, and she was slender. You used to tell me... Father. What? Why did you let her die?
5: She had a sickness for you which... You let
4: to... her die. You could have saved her, and you let her die. Lizzie, and you married that Hulk. I forbid you... Father, Father, listen I to me. I forbid
5: you to speak of my wife in such a manner.
4: let go away from here, Father. Away? Yes, you and I. Give that woman this house, and we'll go away. Father!
5: You'll go away, not me. What? You speak often of quitting this house. I'm going to live with a friend. Do it.
4: You can't mean that.
5: Do it. Good night.
2: Father.
4: Father. I want you to know I always love you. No matter what you say to me.
5: I know, and I'm sorry for you. Good night, Lizzie.
1: August 3rd in the year 1892, a stifling night, humid, sleepless, and filled with drone. A million small sounds, continuous and insistent, made up of insects and dry grass and moist nightclothes against moist bedding. And in the middle room of the second floor of number ninety-two Second Street, Lizzie Borden walked. And walked. And grew warmer and walked. Lizzie Borden wept, her face pressed to the earth, she wept, and in a little while, for some reason or another, she got up and walked over to the pear tree, and plucked a pear, and ate it, and smacked her lips, sweet with juice, at the moon. Lizzie Borden. I'd like to give you a brief rundown on the Borden family. Let's pick the last day all of them were alive, August 4th, 1892. Let's say about 7 o'clock in the morning. Andrew Jackson Borden yawning. A.J. Borden is the head of the house and worth over a quarter of a million dollars. He's getting up now and getting ready to go to the bank so he can be near some of it.
4: Lace me
1: up, Andrew. Abby Durfee Borden, just before lacing up. Abby is 64 years of age and hadn't gone downstairs without a corset since the age of 15. Lizzie Borden, still asleep. Night clothes on the chair where she left them last night. And dreamless. Woman in bed. There are two other people I must mention. There's Bridget Sullivan, the maid who is making making the mutton soup for breakfast and Emma Borden, sister to Lizzie, who's off on a trip to Fairhaven in behalf of the Fruit and Flower Mission. We know that the Bordens, all of them, had their breakfast. We know that Mr. Borden left the house at 9 o'clock for the bank. And we know that Bridget washed the windows in the attic. And we know that, as Bridget sat on the windowsill, washing in such a way that a good part of her was hanging over 2nd Street, Lizzie Borden was inside holding her feet so Bridget wouldn't fall. And we know, too... That there was conversation.
4: I don't feel so good. Why? What's the matter? My stomach still hurts when I press it. It's from the other day. When the milk was poisoned? No, I don't think it was the milk. It was the bananas. I think Mrs. Borden fried them too long. And I always say that bananas fried too long in mutton soup don't go well together. Oh, help me inside, Lizzie. <laughs> Here, press me, here. Oh! You see? Well, then you should lie down, Bridget, and sleep. Oh, if I could, I would. I got these windows to do. Then you just lie down here in your room and sleep. Oh, but... Oh, you do what I tell you. If you mean it, there's nothing I'd like better. I mean it. I'd better inform Mrs. Borden where I'll be. No. In case. I'd better? No. Mrs. Borden is going out soon. Going out? Oh, she didn't tell me she was going out. A messenger brought a note that a friend of hers was sick. Oh, that's a shame. What friend? Oh, I don't know. But Mrs. Borden is getting dressed to sit with her. You really mean it, Miss Lizzie. About me laying down right now and nothing. I really do. Here. I'll turn down your bedclothes. In. In with you. Now you just go to sleep.
1: Saying that to Bridget.
2: You go right to sleep.
1: Saying a thing like that was like putting chloroform under Bridget's nose. She was a snoozer, that one. When she worked, she worked, but get her on a feather bed, good night all, off she went. Lizzie tucked her in and watched over her for a few minutes, and then Lizzie went downstairs and into the guest room.
2: Hello,
4: Mrs. Borden. What do you want, Lizzie? I thought you'd gone out. What made you think that? Oh, I just thought so. And now what do you want? What are you doing in this room, Mrs. Borden? And why shouldn't I be here? Bridget could make up the guest room. You don't have you to. You know very well Bridget is not allowed to clean any of the rooms on the second floor. Oh, yes. But I... father's coming home. That's strange. The side door's locked. He can't get in. It's never locked this time of day. Oh. Hurry! Just a minute. Haven't you got a key?
5: Why is the side door locked?
4: I don't know. Haven't you got a key? No.
5: Come down and open the door.
4: Uh, Try the front one.
5: All right. Wait a minute. It's locked.
2: I'll
4: send Lizzie down. Go down and open the door for your father.
1: vacuum in time. Here is where truth ends and knowledge. On August the 4th, 1892 at number 922nd Street in the town of Fall River, Massachusetts, the time between 10 and 11:15 a.m is lost. Lost, that's the only word for it. Wrenched somehow out of the rest of time and lost. And started again when that happened.
2: Right Bridget! Bridget! Get, off! Get off!
1: When that was spoken.
2: Did you call me Miss Lizzie?
4: Him? With an axe. No, no, don't go in there. Go across the street and get Dr. Brown. Quickly.
2: Mrs. Churchill! Mrs. Churchill! Please,
4: come over. Someone has hit Father with an axe and killed him. Come into the front
2: door. It's open.
4: Father, on the sitting room, on the sofa. Come. You see? Oh, you'd better call for Mr. Harrington of the police. Yes? Who's that? It's me, it's Bridget. Dr. Bourne will be over. May I say something? Of course. Mr. Harrington of the police should know about this. But perhaps Mrs. Borden should know of this first. She's not here. She's out on a sick call.
2: Where is everybody? Oh, in here, Dr. Bowen, in the sitting room. Your father is quite dead, my dear. Yes. I suggest you so inform the police. Inform Mr. Harrington.
4: I'll I, I see to it. You're very kind.
1: This next will be pretty hard to take, but you just have to believe it. I've got the records right here to prove it. Not only was Mr. Harrington not to be found, but there was hardly any cop at all in Fall River. At this very moment, most of them were taking part in the annual excursion of the Fall River Police Association at a shore resort at Rocky Point, which is near Providence, Rhode Island. So, even as Mrs. Churchill was yelling her lungs out for a policeman... They were running sack races, splitting up into quartets for singing purposes, and the more athletic were getting their mustaches wet in the Atlantic Ocean. However, a Marshal Hilliard who had gotten up too late to meet the trolley which met the excursion train was sulking around town, and he's the one Mrs. Churchill spotted. She brought him back to number 92 Second Street. Here, the Marshal viewed the body, gave condolences to Lizzie, and set about looking for clues. During his search, Mrs. Churchill made a remarkable discovery.
4: Lizzie? Yes, Mrs. Churchill? I've just been up on the second floor. Yes. Your mother's up there. She's not my mother. She's my stepmother. She's dead? She's my stepmother. It looks like somebody took an axe and. Well, she's dead.
1: It was quite a troop who went upstairs to look in on Mrs. Abby Borden. There was Lizzie and Bridget and Marshall Hilliard. Then there was Mrs. Russell and Mrs. Bowen and several other ladies who happened in off the street. Then there was Dr. Bowen and, in a little while, the Reverend Mr. Jubb happened in. The latter was the kindest of all to Lizzie. Finally, toward dusk, Mr. Harrington did appear. Sun tanned and sandy and with both his striped bathing suits folded neatly in a strong brown paper. He took charge, and he asked Lizzie where her sister was.
4: In Fairhaven, doing work for the fruit and flower mission.
1: Had her sister been there at the time her mother was murdered?
4: She's not my mother. She's my stepmother.
1: Very well, but where were you, Lizzie Borden?
4: In the barn, getting a piece of iron. For what? Sinkers for my fishing.
1: The whole morning?
4: And in the garden.
1: How did you happen to find your father dead?
4: I was bringing him a pear.
1: And the doctor? I would say your father was killed an hour and a half after your mother. What about that, Lizzie Borden?
4: She's not my mother. She's my stepmother. Who do you think killed them, then? The same man who poisoned the milk. The same man who broke into the barn. The same man who my father saw loitering.
1: Don't you think it's strange that Bridget was asleep and your sister out of town and you out in the garden... All of you out of the way for one hour and a half while your parents are murdered?
4: Mrs. Borden cannot rightly be called a parent of mine.
1: And these were the questions asked, and these the answers. Harrington asked them, the coroner asked them, the prosecuting attorney asked them. Yes, indeed, Lizzie was tried for murder, so there was a prosecuting attorney, and he asked them. These questions and a lot more. The trial lasted 13 days, and Lizzie Borden was adjudged... Not guilty. So, if Lizzie Borden was declared not guilty, we must assume this is the way our unknown murderer operated. Hot day on a busy street in Fall River. Murderer walking down it.
2: Carrying axe.
1: Mrs. Borden disposed of. Wait one hour and a half. Then <clears throat> Mr. Borden. Then... with blood carrying a bloody axe and no one noticed him or they'd go yelling for Mr. Harrington no one did so the murderer was never found and Lizzie she never married she embraced other things
4: till death thy endless mercy seal and make the sacrifice
2: complete.
3: In just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about our next crime classic. Fall River, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Irene Tedrow was heard as Lizzie Borden. Featured in the cast were Jeanette Nolan, Betty Harford, Sarah Selby, Herb Butterfield, William Johnstone, and Paul Fries. Bob Luman speaking.
0: Well, Charles Bonnet Syndrome is positively freaky in real life, but this story really captures that idea and the feel of having Charles Bonnet Syndrome. Also, the real freaky part was when Jason recommended to Andrew that he give the hallucination a name. It's almost like naming the Entity solidified its presence in Andrew's world, giving it a physicality. Also, could it be that his Charles Bonnet Syndrome was diverging into schizophrenia? <sighs> Either way, all this spells trouble for Andrew, goodness. What a neat twist, though, at the end, by the author, Mr. Staff. I'll definitely be looking for more of his works. And our old time radio episode, <laughs> Mrs. Borden. What a pain in the butt! If anyone had an axe to grind, yikes! And Lizzie's father, holy moly, as cold as ice. A terrible, terrible family environment. Gosh. I do want to point out one thing that had me in stitches, the narrator. Firstly the opening line, this is a chicken, followed by chicken sounds and then an abrupt silence. I left that in because it was just so strange, an abrupt for the first piece of audio that someone would listen to on the radio. In fact I've never seen that happen to any other OTR episode, where there's a snippet of audio at the beginning and then… nothing. Also the narrator's choice on specific details, like Lizzie walked, and walked, grew warmer, then walked. I just… the tone had me giggling, it's so deadpan, like at some point he just gave up and stopped caring. Or maybe it's the particular choice of information that he chooses to tell us. For example, let's talk about the Borden family, let's talk about when they were last alive. I mean yes mate, that would be a suitable discussion point. As well as then discussing about the moisture of the moss in the area. (sighs) I know that it wasn't his intention to sound strange or a bit odd, but ultimately it gave the episode even more character and a unique spin to it. I loved it. (laughs) It's these sort of gems that I love finding in OTRs, and tiny choices of dialogue and the kinds of information shared makes the episode just that bit more special. Okay, you lovelies, it's time to thank my peeps that support the show via Patreon. If you enjoyed the show and want to see it grow, send some love my way, mates, at www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. All of your support flies back into production. 100% of it. First up, Maya, the titan class of my Patreon supporters putting this podcast into overcharge. Thank you so much for your level of support. I've been looking into scripts from old time radio episodes, donating some Patreon supporter funds, including your support, to old time radio archivists, using your support to basically ensure that these audio episodes are ripped from tape and stored away digitally for safekeeping. I'll also be using some of these funds to acquire old time radio scripts and to access the copyright for some of them. I may or may not need them depending on when they've been released, but just a heads up as to where your funds are going. I don't think I'll have to do that just yet, but you never know. Thank you so much, Maya, for being amazing and supporting me in the way you do. It will never be forgotten. And lizardmate, Mate, my white tea warlord, thank you for your ongoing support. I'll be keeping you in the loop on the script that I'm picking and can't wait to get it rolling along. Thank you, as always, for your brilliant level of support, mate. And of course, my ill grained forces, the essence of this podcast Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker One and solstra thank all of you for being amazing and supporting the show in the way you do for all of you who spread the word to your friends thank you so much and to any new listeners welcome if you want to reach out to me personally you can do so at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com where you can make story recommendations or let me know how you feel about the show have a wonderful weekend mates and as always till next week me.